Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On DAB+. On the app. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have reached uh, the middle of yet another... I can't believe the date, actually. I looked up the date this morning. 19th of July. Where is this year going, for heaven's sake? This is the last day of term, effectively, uh, for the parliamentarians of this country. We've got Prime Minister's questions for the last time till September. Uh, Rishi Sunak uh, standing up to Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, and we'll be taking stock of what we've been having over the course of this particular term in politics. After all, let's not forget, we've lost the leader of the SNP. The First Minister of Scotland has gone. Uh, We've got a new Prime Minister who's been in power for not quite a year, uh, but hasn't achieved an awful lot. Inflation is beginning to come down a little bit. Uh, The boats have not been stopped. There's more and more people, in fact, coming uh, to our shores illegally than ever before. Uh, We've got a barge sitting off the coast of uh, Portland, uh, which is about to be filled with 500 of the illegal migrants. We've got people fighting back down in... Uh, Clenetley in South Wales trying to stop uh, the people who run these incredible money-making schemes to put migrants into hotels, trying to stop that from happening in a place down there. Uh, there's reshuffle rumours. You know, we've got Ben Wallace who says he's going to leave uh, his job as, de- as Secretary of Defence. We've got all sorts of warnings about terrorism going on. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, Dr Paul Stott about that because apparently many, many people fear, particularly in the intelligence community, uh, that there's more terrorists here than ever before. We're going to talk about Nigel Farage's bank account uh, because it now turns out that Coots cancelled it, not because he didn't have enough money, but because they didn't like some of his friends, to wit one President Donald Trump. And they didn't also like the fact that he campaigned for Brexit. Uh, NHS is in turmoil still. Uh, we've got problems there because the consultant doctors are now going out on strike, despite the fact that they earn an average of £128,000 a year. Annabel Denham joins us too. She'll talk about all sorts of things, including McDonald's, uh, which seems to have been inflicted and infected by uh, a dose of sexual harassment. A lot of people who work there say uh, that they've been touched uh, in an unwanted manner uh, and that they've been harassed sexually. I don't know what's going on. 0344 499 1000. The weather, of course, still a massive story over in Europe. The BBC are actually now making stories up about how hot it is. That's how bad it is. And I think it's time they actually stop doing it because I think it's actually quite disingenuous and I'm quite ashamed to even suggest that these people are proper journalists because they're frankly not. Tim Montgomery's going to join us first up, former number 10 advisor, founder of Conservative Home. We'll get uh, his line on what it is that we've achieved in the last few months politically. I'm not sure there's going to be much to boast about. We want to hear from you as well, of course. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. could be forgiven for thinking that, um, you know, the place is awash with scandal if you were looking around the social media world. Uh, But we're not going to go into all sorts of scandal that we've already gone all sorts of ways into. Uh, What we are going to do is talk about the country and the state of it and how it's going. Uh, Let's talk to Tim Montgomery. Tim, a very good morning to you. Good morning. So here we are. We've reached the end of term. Um, My first thought was to say to you as a a titan of these uh, of these parts, you know, where have we what have we achieved and where have we got to uh, since the last sort of um, recess, I suppose, around about Easter time? Well, I'm mainly pleased that I managed to get my um, monitor to work um, <laughs> this morning, Mike. Um, Me my too. My laptop broke about uh, an hour or so ago, and uh, so this is a very makeshift operation. So if you can see and hear me, that's... Um, well, we can. I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased. I'm... You don't think you've been hacked by the Chinese, do you? 
<laughs> or by coots or any other possible right. enemies that uh, we we have. Look, if I had to list the um, achievements of this government, I'm afraid they would be, um, you know, quite short. Really, hmm. the, um, Rishi Sunak has brought stability to the government and the country since he became prime minister. And I think a year ago, we would have been very grateful for that, given the turmoil of the of the trust premiership. Yes. We still don't really know what he believes. He, he doesn't really have any um, long-term sense of what kind of country he wants to build. And, um, you know, these are difficult times for the world. You look at most you know, countries in the Western world, they've all got different kinds of turmoil. And so... There's something in the West, demography, uh, quite mature economies, uh, technological change, the, the, the consequences of the lockdown, which mean that every country faces challenging times. And you know, we always need good leaders in even happy times, but these aren't happy times. And um, we just seem to be having a, a generation of people come forward now who haven't really done much in their private lives, quite young, quite inexperienced, obsessed with politics. Just like a, you know, a, a crop designed for better times. You know, the climate is changing and our politicians aren't flexible or adaptable enough really to, to rise to the occasion. No, exactly right. I mean, you talk about a young sort of um, generation coming in who maybe have different views and different um, aspirations than, than previous um, uh, incarnations of it. But I'm uh, looking down the sort of list of events for today. One of them is um, Ross Kempsell becoming uh, a Lord in the House of Lords. And, I mean, I'm not picking on Ross Kempsell in particular, but he's a young guy. He worked here for a while some years ago. He ended yeah. up being a number 10 advisor. But he's now going to be in the House of Lords at the age of about 30. I'm not sure exactly what age he is, but seems a bit early, doesn't it? Yeah, look, you know, some people create amazing global businesses, you know, when they're young. They yeah. write amazing doctorates at university. You know, young people can be, you know, the right age to take on great responsibilities. But, you know, I don't know about you, Mike, but um, I think I'm wiser uh, now than I was. Yeah. You, know, you learn things over time. Uh, you learn how to navigate bureaucracy. You know how cultures work in organizations you know more people to you know to talk to to learn from you're willing to admit mistakes i think more when you're older and yeah. not try and carry on you know pretending everything is okay and so you know i do worry that uh, the number of people leaving parliament at the next general election you know taking with them all the experience they have you know the 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 chats that took place in the Commons traditionally, yes. with older MPs, you know, advising younger, new MPs, those aren't going to happen, you know, next time. Mm. And, you know, this really is no time for a novice or a Parliament of novices. No, but it looks as if it might be that that's what we end up getting because if the projections are correct, there will be an awful lot of Tory uh, members who lose their seats. As you say, many of them are yeah. already suggesting they're going to jump before they push Ben Wallace being uh, the most recent one. Um, but we've got that brings us on to the to the by-elections, which, which are upcoming to three on Thursday. Um, is there any chance, do you think, that the Tories can hang on to one of those? <laughs> Some people say you know, the, the whole... ULEZ issue in Uxbridge is very unpopular. Yeah. Londoners are paying an awful lot of money for basically not living the life that they're expected to in their residential areas. And um, 
I think it will hurt Labour. But the mood against the Conservatives is so stark now, I think it would take more than you, Liz, to, to save them in that seat. Um, I, I understand Somerton and from the Somerset seats, it's certainly going to be won by the Liberals. And Selby, which the party had some hope of early on in the contest because of the huge nature of the majority, mm. that slipped away as well. So it's going to be bad, bad, bad news for Rishi Sunak um, on Friday. Yeah, I think so. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle that because, you know, um, politicians are brilliant at trying to make out that it was never as bad as it could have been or it's not as bad as you think it is and this is why. But in the end, I mean, we've literally had a year, if you look at the calendar year, of probably more cabinet ministers coming and going than any time in the history of, of Parliament, haven't we? Because, I mean, there were people literally being made cabinet ministers um, in the summer last year um, um, and then leaving the office at sort of literally the same afternoon. How many people have been Chancellor? How many people have been educated? <laughs> I can't remember most of them. <laughs> no, and I think the most famous example is, I think, since the Conservatives came to power, there's been about 13 housing ministers or right. something ridiculous like that. Now, there you have an absolutely typical long-term challenge. I think probably, Mike, the biggest challenge facing our country. You know, it's, it's every Englishman's dream to have a home of their own, nice garden, you know, sensible commute to work, security, um, beauty, ideally, you know, the concept of something rural and green. Uh, something I'm, you know, very fortunate to have managed to achieve. And yet there's so many young people now who will never, you know, never realistically expect to have their own home. And that's not just meaning that their life goals are, uh, you know, are not so great as previous generation, but, you know, it, it makes them less keen on capitalism as well. Yeah. You know, they experience sharks of landlords often in London very expensive and um, it's a very bad position for the Conservative Party to be in, not to have built houses and uh, not to have put ministers in place to actually deliver something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And I mean, talking about a reshuffle uh, on the cards, I presume that may happen perhaps not on Friday, but, but sometime uh, into next week. I mean, is there any chance, do you think, that if it's a really bad result, that Rishi Sunak will will do something dramatic? Well, it would be the first time he... It's not in his nature, <laughs> I think. He's, he's a manager, and yeah. he's quite a good manager. You know, he's he's a well-educated man. He 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 does you know, the opposite of Liz Trust, who didn't really look at the detail of her policy. He examines the detail. That's his skill. But, uh, you know, I... I don't think he has uh, you know, an answer to the Tories' electoral problem. And certainly the mood amongst Tory MPs I speak to, normally when you're at a turning point by elections or some other big event and they're expected to be bad, most Tory MPs, most Tory strategists say, well, we need to do this now or do ABC, get rid of that. Now it's just sort of resignation from you know, Tories I speak to. They... Mm. They just think, you know, the time is up for the Conservatives. It's been a difficult, you know, 13 years. Yeah. And eventually, you, you know, no project lasts forever. No. And I think that's the feeling that the Conservatives, you know... The trouble is, though, the fit, that there isn't a sense that it really was a project. You know, and even with the major yeah. years, you know, there was at least a kind of 
there seemed to be a kind of, you know, post-Thatcherism that they believed in. There seemed to be a reasonable amount of, you know, capitalist theory that they were they were kind of excoriating out and trying to make society work that way. After the 13 years we've had, it doesn't feel like it was a sort of cogent, put-together project, does it? No. You make a really interesting point about the major years as well. And who would think that we would look back on the major years with some, you know, warmth? <laughs> yeah. And I remember you know, Michael Howard's prison reform, you know, happened during that period. And mm. Up until that time, crime had risen remorselessly every year in in Britain. People thought that crime would, you know, the tide would never be turned. Mm. Michael Howard, against all of the criminal justice establishment, said, we're going to send more people to prison because prison works. Because when people are in prison, this is a very radical thought, they can't commit crime. And, you know, a small number of people do you know, account for most crime. In That's still true. And the major government, as well as leaving a booming economy for Labour, they did turn the tide on crime. It's very hard to know anything equivalent that this uh, this government, uh, this uh, second part or whatever you call it, of the uh, Conservative time in office can say they achieved. It's um, very disappointing. It is. Stay with us if you would, Tim. We've got to come back to you to talk about a few things. Uh, matters arising. And breaking news as well. Councillor Susan Hall has been selected as the Conservative Party's 2024 London mayoral candidate to face Sadiq Khan. I have to say, uh, that's the first good thing the Tory party have actually done. Congratulations to Susan Hall. Uh, Tim Montgomery coming back uh, with more information. We'll look at Labour and what they're going to do if they do become the next party of government. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you until one o'clock, of course, all the way through uh, the morning. We'll take a lot of calls this morning from you on all manner of things. 0344 499 1000. It is kind of the end of term politically. But an extraordinary story, um, Tim. We've got Tim Montgomery with us, uh, former number 10 advisor, that we must really address. And this is the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Nigel Farage, bank account axed as he doesn't align with our values. He's got some documentation from Coots, which reveals basically that according to them, he is seen as xenophobic and racist. He is considered by many to be a disingenuous grifter. Being associated with Nigel Farage presents a material and ongoing reputational risk to the bank. I mean, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? It really is extraordinary, Mike. You know, a word we use often, and I'm genuinely shocked by Coutts' behaviour. You know, I, I had this old-fashioned idea that banks, you know, basically, people who worked in banks you know, looked after your money, yeah. you know, just researched investments, you know, examined the stock market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the large part of the Coots workforce seems to be spent, you know, they spend their time analysing the politics mm. of the people that bank with them. And, um, you know, questions to the BBC, by the way, I think, Mike, when this story first broke and Nigel Farage made his... Uh, accusations um coots issued a statement to the bbc's uh, business editor and the bbc's business editor basically presented that statement as fact yeah you know choosing to believe the bank because perhaps because i don't like you know nigel farage yeah and what has transpired is that those banks that you know didn't exactly behave well up until the stock market crash still aren't exactly behaving well. Mm. And um, 
I think it's a sign, really, of a lot of the problems, really, now in in British industry. The, the difference between a large bureaucracy of a bank or a private business and the state isn't as great as it was. You know, private companies were you know, traditionally thought to be more buccaneering. The state you know, slightly more bureaucratic. But because the state regulates uh, private business so intensively now, the human resource functions, uh, all sorts of regulation which has to be uh, measured in numbers form rather than sort of professional codes of conduct. The, the ethos of the state has affected so many private sector organisations in a way it's more sort of indistinguishable. And I think that's the sort of thing that's happening behind this story today. We have a, a politically correct woke ethos that started in the state and the university and it's creeping through all the private sector institutions too. Yeah, it is very sad because, as, as Nigel Farage says, you know, uh, the dossier reads rather like a pre-trial brief drawn up by the prosecution in a case against a career criminal. Yeah. You know, they were checking on his social media output. They were uh, apparently accusing him of being friends with Novak Djokovic, which I don't know whether uh, that is in some way a thought crime, being friends with Donald Trump. I mean, it's entirely a bizarre sort of dossier to even think about putting together at all. I find and, it staggering. And retweeting something from Ricky Debate, yeah. one of the country's most popular comedians. Apparently mm. that's wrong too. Right. It's very, very strange indeed. And I mean, the government should, I mean, I'm not one for interventionist policy from any government, but surely the government's going to have to give some kind of guidance here to banks to say you cannot arbitrarily just take people's accounts away from them because you don't like their politics. And in this case, I, I don't know what the state still is, but... Um, I think the taxpayer, you, me, and every viewer and listener to this program, you know, we part own this company, and so uh, you know, I think we should be asking some tough questions. You know, when we bailed them out, I think the expectation was that you know they would go back into the market, they'd make money more sensibly than they did previously, and they would pay back the taxpayer for keeping them alive. But it seems like you know our taxes and our money is being used to them to not just monitor Nigel Farage, but you know, 52% of the country voted for Brexit. Are banks like uh, NatWest, the parent company of Coops, really saying we don't really want the business of Brexit? That seems to be the underlying message of, uh, of this investigation. Banks should do what banks do. Supermarkets should do what supermarkets do. Leave the population politics for customers to, you know, to decide. And you know, we're free citizens. We shouldn't be bossed around by bureaucracy. No, exactly right. And of course, we can't leave you without mentioning the consultants who are going on strike tomorrow, which kind of sums up, I would say, the state of Britain today. Uh, people who on average make about £128,000 a year. And I stress that it's not all consultants, it's just the ones that work with the BMA, basically. Um, it's an extraordinary thing for them to do, isn't it? I mean, people are waiting on an NHS waiting list, waiting for um, all sorts of operations and procedures to be done. And yet these characters, I can't believe it, actually think the public will have some sympathy for them. Well, I sometimes wonder whether I should retrain as a nurse, um, <laughs> Mike, because I could then say, as a nurse, I think you should be shot. You know, there's, sort of, there's an authority... <laughs> 
that people attach to health professionals that um, you know doesn't attach to uh, people like us journalists or whatever. They do have a moral authority, so I'm not sure you're entirely right that the public won't have sympathy with them. But I think it must be running thin, and um, you know, NHS managers have said pretty starkly the NHS is absolutely at its limits now. People will die today, tomorrow, over the next few days of this strike mm. that wouldn't have died, who wouldn't have died otherwise, and that's. You know, we talk about lots of issues um, in our in our chats, but this really is life and death mm. stuff. And uh, when the public finances are clearly under enormous pressure, this does seem entirely the wrong time for junior doctors to try and make up um, what they think of deficiencies mm. in their pain. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Tim, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. I'm glad you, your makeshift laptop held up under the strains uh, of all of the latest kind of technological difficulties that we all face. Uh, breaking news once again, Councillor Susan Hall has been selected as the Conservative Party's 2024 London mayoral candidate to face Sadiq Khan. Uh, we will try and get Susan on to get her uh, reaction for that. But just before we go uh, to talk to uh, Professor Paul Stoll, let me read you this uh, from uh, a doctor who is not going on strike tomorrow. I'm a senior hospital consultant, surgeon and certainly won't be striking tomorrow. This applies to many of my colleagues. Many of us are not BMA members. This represents another example of the creeping takeover of our institutions by the political left. I'm appalled at many of both my senior and junior colleagues. We all made a solemn oath to our patients to treat them and look after them. I think you'll find many hospital consultants will be at work as normal. We don't all have a selfish and unethical outlook. Don't forget the consultants do that uh, in their own free time and when we're not contracted to the NHS. This makes us better and more experienced doctors and surgeons for all this extra work. I, for one, work six days a week and often do admin on Sundays. Listen, I'm certainly not going to tar every single doctor with the same brush, but I will say that any doctor who is going out on strike um, is not a proper doctor in my view because you shouldn't ever be doing it. You should not ever want to put any patient in harm's way. And if you do, then ethically speaking, you are not qualified as a doctor. It's as simple as that. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Mike, banks closing accounts from political views or the vicar who questioned why so many trans flags is the sort of thing you imagine in 1930s Germany if they questioned why so many Nazi flags in the banks or shops. Wasn't Sunak's family involved in China credit system, says Tony in Barrow Furness. Well, I think there's no question that this idea that banks can somehow turn customers away because they don't like their politics, it seems to me to be a very rocky road and a very dangerous road for any commercial organisation to go down uh, because surely then they're going to have to go through root and branch every single customer they've got and every single political view that each of those customers have got and then take a view of whether they should have a bank account. Absolutely mad. Completely bonkers and shouldn't be allowed. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Dr Paul Stott, Head of Security and Extremism at Policy Exchange because the story this morning uh, says this. Small boats could be a backdoor into Britain for terrorists and this is something that is believed by the intelligence agencies here in this country. More than 13,000 people have arrived on the small boat since January. 19 suspected terrorists are known to have crossed the channel. Uh, foreign nationals were linked with groups including ISIS uh, and many more who have since lodged asylum claims from coming here illegally uh, cannot be deported which leaves a rather bad taste in the mouth doesn't it um dr paul a very good uh, morning to you welcome good morning mike 
I mean, we talk about the small boats pretty much every day here on uh, Talk TV because there's always a story about uh, whether it's the migrant barge being towed into Portland, whether it's the two cruise ships that have been uh, refused uh, uh, permission to dock at Liverpool and Edinburgh, whether it's the numbers of people coming, the sheer monies that are being spent on hotels for them and all the rest of it. But this is a proper, really serious story, it seems to me. Yes, I mean, the reason you talk about small boats so often, Mike, is because it's firstly an important issue, but secondly, one that the government struggled to resolve. And that leads us really onto the debate around terrorism. And if you've got large numbers of people entering the country who you don't know very much about, mm. that is clearly a problem. And what we're beginning to see, um, the government uh, launched, uh, re uh, published a uh, a, a relaunch of its contest strategy uh, yesterday, and Swellab Raverman covered some of this, mm. is people coming into the country who, in some cases, we have, I think, been able to identify by fingerprinting, who have uh, connections with extremist groups, Islamic states, etc., etc. If you look at the most devastating period of, of terrorist attacks in Europe, it was when Islamic State was in control of territory in the Middle East, in mm. Syria, and it sent its fighters via migration routes through southern Europe and then up into France and, and Belgium, where they carried out attacks. So this is a real threat, and it's a reminder of just how important it is to solve that small boats crisis. Absolutely right. But of course, if you are one of those um, people who think that open borders are a great idea and that we should welcome anyone that wants to come here because surely they have a chance and an opportunity to better their lives. Um, you know, you and I would be registered as bigots and, and racists and, and, you know, nasty people. Surely everybody deserves a second chance at life. Well, actually, no. If terrorists are actively, you know, using this as a route to get to Britain, then obviously we have to stop them. Well, no individual, Mike, leaves their front door open on a routine no, exactly. um, basis. But some people seem to expect the, uh, the country more generally to do this. Um, one of the things that we've argued, uh, there was a policy exchange report, Rocky Bissam, who I know you have on uh, very often, yeah. wrote recently on the small boats crisis. And as well as detailing the, the financial impact on all of us, but particularly on working class communities, um, one of the things we call for in there is the prevent duty, part of our counter extremism uh, policies, to be extended to the immigration service. So people working in the immigration service are properly trained in identifying extremists, so as they can understand who better who they're dealing with, that they can look out potentially for radicalised individuals or those who may be encouraging others on a, a, an extremist path. And until we give um, our civil servants the sort of proper tools and the political will to carry out uh, government instruction and strategy. We are at risk, I'm afraid, both from extremists themselves, but also those sorts of wishy-washy ideas that you've just outlined. Right. And what is the current state of, of that uh, sort of land in what they called the, Le the Levant, which was kind of between Iraq and Syria, um, where ISIS had their kind of headquarters, where they had their Islamic State? What, what does that actually look like now? Well, much of that is controlled by, uh, by the Kurds um, now. The uh, Syrian government, I think, has, um, as if you like, survived uh, the civil war, um, the, the Assad uh, regime. But perhaps the main player in the region now is probably the Turks, mm. who seem to take a rather contrary uh, position on on, uh, 
extremism and, and security, very focused on attacking the Kurds, who were of uh, no international threat uh, whatsoever, and who have differing relations with the various Islamist and jihadist groups, and are, are sometimes accused of being far too permissive towards them. What's noticeable, however, in terms of Islamic State, is its rise of influence in Africa, and in particular, East Africa. Mm. And that may well pose a significant threat uh, in in the years to come, that there are jihadists who are, who are regrouping there and really looking to uh, repeat what they did in the Middle East in Africa. Yes. And so, I mean, the, the, the force as we knew it of, of ISIS has more or less dissipated then, has it? It does. I mean, it was interesting in the report yesterday and, and Swala Braverman's speech, he did touch on both Al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic State. And the characterisation really of a threat that was lesser than it was um, from that particularly bad period in um, the middle part of the last decade, 2015 to 2017, mm. but a threat that's greater than it has been. And what characterises terrorist groups, particularly jihadist groups, is is almost a, a sort of an extreme addiction to patience and persistence. So these groups are never really totally defeated. They have a tendency to to endure and to, to ebb and flow. And the feeling seems to be that there's a, a little bit of momentum for some of these groups again now. Right. And I mean, if there is a, a threat to national security because of the fact that some of these uh, terrorists are coming across to Britain, uh, illegally across the channel. Surely that's enough of a reason for the government to put more effort into stopping them, as opposed to saying they're going to stop them and they're not stopping them. Well, there's unfortunately clear evidence from some of the terrorist attacks that we've had over the past uh, five years since the, uh, the, the previous contest review. Um... Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You have the, the botched suicide bombing in uh, Liverpool, which was carried out by um, somebody who'd come from the, the Middle East and was, was going at snail's pace through the asylum system. The murder of the three gay men in the park in Reading, mm. uh, much the same, but with somebody from Libya. Yeah. So it's not as if the government doesn't know, and it's not as if the public doesn't know mm. that the problem has been solving the issue of small boats and more generally immigration, because the figures are so high now, uh, you know, net immigration figures every year in the hundreds of thousands, it's almost inevitable that some bad people are going to get through mm. and those tasked with stopping them are really looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the sort of the threat level goes, uh, we're told that it's kind of on the rise again. It's been a relative period of calm terrorist-wise. I mean, I don't like to tempt fate, but but it hasn't been too bad last few years. No, and this is uh, something we've seen before. There wasn't a deadly attack in the UK after 7-7 until 2013 when mm. Lee Rigby was killed. Yeah. Um, so, Tuckwood, we haven't had a, a deadly uh, terrorist attack since the um, murder of David Amos MP in late 2021. Mm. But it's quite clear from uh, the government's report 
that the authorities are disrupting plots and also um, that there are lots of people out there who still wish to do us harm. Yes, and I'm afraid that's never going to change, is it? I'm, uh, it looks as though that we're stuck with that for the rest of the time. Dr Paul Stott, thank you very much indeed. Head of Security and Extremism at Policy Exchange. Britain's spies uh, foiling an average of eight terror attacks a year, uh, it says this, amid disturbing signs of a resurgence of al-Qaeda uh, and possibly ISIS um, operatives coming to this country on small boats, unchecked because they throw their papers away, are immediately put on a bus, immediately taken to a hotel, immediately provided with uh, food and comfort, uh, while rest of the country uh, struggles to uh, earn a living and struggles to pay for various bills that are going up and up and up and up. There's something not right about that entire picture, is there? 0344 499 1000. We'll take your calls next. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On DAB+, on the app, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the only place for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've just been telling you breaking news. Uh, just Stop Oil uh, marching down a particular road in London. I'm not quite sure exactly where it is, but there's been an altercation. A man got out of a car and punched to the ground one of the Just Stop Oil slow marchers, then kicked him in the head. Now, this is something I've been warning about. There's not one sign of any police officer in sight. Obviously, the police are now in a situation where they must stop these protest because if they don't there will be more trouble there will be more violence there will be more problems for those people uh, who have got nothing better to do than march about slowly in London holding up traffic people are getting absolutely enraged by it people are getting absolutely beside themselves with fury and so naturally of course you can't condone violence but naturally these people are frustrated and they're lashing out and so the police have got now a duty to arrest these people, to get them off the streets and to prevent them from doing it every single day, because this is now untenable. It's a totally and utterly ridiculous situation which could have been solved by the police, but has not been solved by the police. They've now got the powers to arrest these bozos. So get on with it and stop preventing traffic from being able to move around the capital city of one of Europe's largest economies. For heaven's sake, do something. 0344 499 1000. As soon as we have that video footage for you, we will play it to you. But right now, we're going to talk to Ben Jones, the Deputy Case Director of the Free Speech Union, because an extraordinary story emerged late yesterday. Nigel Farage, uh, the former leader of UKIP, the former leader of the Brexit Party, a man who has been vilified most of his political career but I can say uh, as an individual and as a personal friend of his that actually Nigel Farage is a very decent man. Uh, he is not in any way the way he is described by Coots Bank, which is, to wit, he is seen as racist and xenophobic. He is considered by many to be a disingenuous grifter. Being associated with Nigel Farage presents a material and ongoing reputational risk to the bank. Uh, they talk about him being friends um, with Novak Djokovic. They talk about him being friends with Donald Trump. They talk about his views on LGBT being untenable. They talk about his views on Brexit and his role in the Brexit campaign uh, as being unhelpful. I mean, this is quite an extraordinary dossier, uh, which, as Nigel Farage says, is a bit akin to the dossier that somebody would be putting together uh, against a master criminal before a trial, for heaven's sake. But this is a bank uh, which is supposed to be there for one thing and one thing only, to manage somebody's money. Let's find out from Ben Jones how we could have got here. Ben, a very good uh, morning to you. 
Good morning. How could we have got here? Because um, I, I sort of have various incredulous conversations with, with different people who say, you know, well, we've all got views that some people at Coots might not like. Are we going to be next? Are we going to have our bank accounts cancelled? Are they going to look at our social media um, statements and decide that we are, you know, not worthy characters? It's been astonishing watching people on the left, journalists on the left, uh, in the years since the Occupy movement and to now be 15 years later, where they're uncritically accepting the claims of banks right. and press releases by banks, yeah. not investigating them, not casting a critical eye over them at all, uh, simply because they don't like Nigel Farage very much. They, fine, if you don't like Nigel Farage, that's, that's completely fine. But they've been completely blinded to the larger issue that if this is going to happen to Nigel Farage, it's going to happen to a lot of other people who don't have the platform or the ability um, to raise these issues, to point out this is happening to people, to sound the alarm about what's going on. Exactly right. And I mean, the BBC in particular have been to blame for this. You know, they swallowed hook, line and sinker, a, a, a sort of a, a leak that came out of Coots a couple of weeks ago, which suggested that, you know, this was nothing to do with anything um, ideological. It was nothing to do with any political decision. It was purely and simply that Nigel Farage didn't have enough money. And so they kind of gloated, didn't they, the BBC and their business correspondent, as did the likes of John Sopel, sort of gloated that, oh, isn't it funny, ha-ha, that poor old Nigel Farage hasn't got enough money to keep his bank account at Coots, the snob. I mean, the, the, the stench of hypocrisy was quite ridiculous, right? Um, and it turns out, of course, that not only did the BBC publish that without challenging it, um, they positively wanted it to be true, but it isn't. No, and the entire establishment narrative, if you like, has completely crumbled. We were told that it was something to do with Russia, although no one seems willing to repeat that particular accusation outside uh, the House of Commons, where you have parliamentary privilege. Then we were told uh, it's because he didn't have enough money. The lie has been given to that as well. Yeah. I don't know what business the bank had in disclosing the personal information uh, of one of its customers, right. presumably something that many customers of Coots and NatWest will find deeply troubling. Mm. Um, and so the whole narrative has collapsed. Now we have the incontrovertible proof that it was because Nigel Farage doesn't share the bank's values. Right. I mean, I don't know what business the bank has in having values and enforcing <laughs> those values on its customers. It's a complete nonsense. Well, I mean, maybe they should tell us what their values are. Maybe they should explain perhaps what uh, investments they hold and whether uh, we might not have the values that they have and we may not wish to bank with them knowing what we know about them. You know, and as uh, Julie hartley Brewer pointed out this morning, you know, the Royal Bank, which is what they're known as, presumably hold accounts for members of the royal family. Do they hold an account for Prince Andrew? Do they hold an account for, for any terrorists? Do they hold accounts for anybody who's committed any crime? You know, this is a problem not just for, um, for Coots. It's a problem, presumably, for, for the entire banking group which, of course, is partly owned by the taxpayer. Yeah, of whom 17 million voted for Brexit and I think about 5 million voted for Nigel Farage's party at the European elections in 2019. Um, so it seems to me that the bank in NatWest is, is saying to all of these individuals, well, you don't share our values, you're not welcome. That seems disastrous from a business point of view, but from the perspective of freedom of speech, it's incredibly troubling and I think perhaps the most sinister manifestation of cancel culture that we've seen at the Free Speech Union. As you know, Mike, we had our own run-in last year with PayPal where our accounts were closed mm. with, with no warning, no justification. They were reinstated after a, a massive backlash in the media uh, and politicians as well. And since then, we have met with and been uh, campaigning for the government to change the financial regulations to protect people from this type of political discrimination. And we already have the position in, in law where you quite rightly can't discriminate against somebody because of their religious beliefs or their non-religious beliefs or their race and so on. It should also be the case that you can't discriminate against people because of their political views, political views which, as we saw in the Brexit referendum, actually a majority of people agree with. Well, exactly right. I mean, it's not exactly extremist, is it? What about the idea that somehow um, you know, the bank 
can take this view. Um, it's, it's been suggested to me in the past that it might be against the Equalities Act. But, I mean, is the government likely to be able to impose any more sort of restrictions, shall we say, on banks operating like this? Well, we have had encouraging noises from the city minister. And so I hope uh, the, hopefully the answer to that question is going to be uh, an emphatic yes. Um, but at the moment, we're in a position where clearly more does need to be done, because if this is happening to Nigel Farage, you can guarantee it's happening to other people as well. And one of the features of this particular type of cancellation is that we suspect that for many people who've had this happen to them where a bank has closed their account, you're probably going to want to keep that quiet, because otherwise you're going to have immense difficulties right. opening up accounts with other banks. So we suspect and fear that this is a much more widespread phenomenon. And we've already had a lot of contact from people who are concerned about this, or have had uh, run-ins with various payment uh, providers. And we've been helping people across the political spectrum deal with those types of situation at the Free Speech Union. So I, I just say again, this isn't just about Nigel Farage. As he himself has said, this is a much broader issue. And I would feel just as indignant about this if it had happened to Diane Abbott or Caroline Lucas yeah. or somebody on the left. It's not about whether you like Nigel Farage or not. It's much, much bigger uh, than that. And we've reached a very sinister point where banks feel that they are uh, justified in doing this. And they've reached a level of, uh, of, of sanctimonious self-righteousness where they think that this is a justifiable thing to do. But also where people on the left, unfortunately too many, uh, are completely unconcerned by this, which I think is terribly short-sighted. Well, that is the problem with people on the left, is that they don't like um, certain people, therefore anything that those people say or do uh, is a problem, as opposed to actually thinking at what it is that they're saying and what it is that they're doing, and then perhaps supporting what they're saying and what they're doing. You know, it's a sort of blind madness. It's some kind of, you know, uh, they convince themselves that everything that the Tories do is evil, that everything Nigel Farage does is, is somehow xenophobic. I mean, it's quite pathetic, really, in its kind of infancy. Um, because the clear problem here as well, presumably, is if you have a bank account cancelled, it has some reflection on your credit rating, doesn't it? Well, that's the fear, and this is what this is why we suspect this will be a much more widespread problem than we that we currently believe, and we already have substantial evidence now, um, not least from Nigel Farage. Subject One of the lines, incidentally, that struck me particularly from that disclosure that the bank was forced to make yeah. uh, was the line that uh, Nigel Farage's views were distasteful and appear increasingly out of touch with wider society. And it may be that those views are incompatible with the people who run Coots or the people at the top of the NatWest group uh, or with people at the top of society in the civil service, in academia, in the media. Clearly, they are out of touch with, with those views and deeply unsympathetic to those sorts of people. But for many millions of people, Nigel Farage is one of very few figures articulating a perspective that is otherwise unrepresented or substantially right. underrepresented in Parliament. Um, and so he has the right to express those views. And I would put actually to Coots that it is they who are completely out of touch with what people want and the diversity of political perspectives in Britain, only some of which are deemed to be acceptable. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Rather like the people who continually maintain that anyone who is somehow against the absolute free and open borders um, sort of uh, policy that, that some would like to see here in this country uh, is somehow some kind of far right bigot. You know, like the people down in Planetley who are trying to stop a particular hotel from being taken over by a government contractor uh, who wants to put, you know, illegal migrants in there. You know, they're somehow being categorised and painted as being far right when they're simply neighbours in, in an area uh, which is residential who don't want something and they haven't been asked if they want it uh, and they're demonstrating against it. I mean, to be fair, if it was just Stop Oil doing it, they wouldn't be tarnished in that way. Well, the range of acceptable views in Britain seems to be getting narrower yeah. and narrower. We see that in our work at the Free Speech Union. We've helped more than 2,000 people in three years 
who have been censured or punished mm. or lost their job or kicked out of their university or whatever it may be for expressing their views. And in this case, the bank, I, I mean, they may as well put a sign on the door saying no critics of trans ideology, no Brexiteers, uh, no lockdown sceptics. Those views are all completely intolerable and will discriminate against you if you hold them, right. uh, which is completely unacceptable, particularly for a banking group, as you pointed out, that I think the taxpayer has a 39% uh, holding in. Exactly. I mean, have you been able to discover whether you can help people whose bank accounts are getting closed? Because obviously, uh, as you say, this may happen to people who are, are not particularly high profile and they may not know what to do. What, what should they do if, if, uh, if it does happen to them? Well, the first step is contact the Free Speech Union. You can find all of our contact details on our website. We do have a lot of experience, growing experience, sadly, in this particular area. Um, and then I think the first recommendation would be that you send in a subject access request, a data request for all the material that a bank or payment right. processor holds on you. We have several legal cases ongoing that began last year, about which I can't give too much detail now, um, where, we where we are fighting at the closure of people's accounts on basis of their political or philosophical views and as i said this isn't just people from the right it's across mm. the political spectrum and that's what i really want to get across here that this is not just about nigel farage this is happening to people on the left the right and the center right. and his ability to access the information that he was able to get his hands on yesterday is that relatively easy to do that if you're if you're an ordinary citizen Yes, it is. Everyone has the right to access personal data that a bank or a business or an employer mm. or whatever holds about them. Uh, we can help you draft those requests. Uh, it's frequently the first thing we recommend to people who are dealing with a situation of this, whether it's that they've been debanked or they've been cancelled in some other way. Yeah. Um, but it's a terrifying moment. I mean, it's bad enough to be forced out of your job and not be able to pay your rent or mortgage yeah. because of your political views. But to get to the point where you can't even have a bank account, it's shocking. And it's incredible how easy it is to, to, to kind of put a spanner in the works of your life as well. Because I had for a while a problem with, with a, a business account of mine, which I couldn't access because I didn't have, you know, a card reader uh, that worked properly. Um, and because I had to go through the motions to get things sent to me, right, there was about a two week period where I couldn't get out any of the money which wreaked all kinds of havoc because you're so used to just being able to move money or get money or put money in or whatever it is, that when you suddenly can't do it, your life is, is a completely in turmoil. Yeah, and as we've seen from some of these other cases, people have discovered that they've been debanked because they've gone to the shop, they've tried to use their card and it hasn't worked. And that's the first they've heard of the fact that their bank account mm. is being closed. Yeah, incredible stuff. Ben, really good to talk to you. Thanks for your advice as well. Ben Jones, Deputy Case Director of the Free Speech Union, who says rather reluctantly now um, that actually it's becoming a massive story. And the Free Speech Union, they're beginning to have to help loads and loads of people who have had the same thing happen to them. So if it has happened to you um, and you need some help, go to them, but also talk to us as well. 0344 499 1000. Ian in York says, Mike Ray, Nigel Farage, we have been brainwashed to fear and hate the right. This is part of the creeping authoritarianism of the left, which is far more insidious. The socialism of Drakeford, Sturgeon and Khan shows us just how authoritarian they are prepared to be. Starmer will be the same. This country is in a bloody mess because of this liberal left crap. And if Labour get in, it will only get worse. Kill blimey, what a thought. I can't look forward to that. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's end of term time down in Westminster. The final Prime Minister's questions taking place uh, at midday today. We'll bring in the best of it with Peter Cardwell uh, coming up a little bit later than that. Annabel Denham joins us in the next hour as well. Uh, we'll talk to her about a great many things, including uh, that uh, Jaguar Land Rover battery plant, which uh, the government have paid £500 million in subsidies to uh, sort of achieve. You might think that's a good thing. Um, I don't say it's a bad thing, but it's a shame that we have to lure people here with financial incentives, particularly as they are, you know, independent financial organisations 
uh, people that supposedly live and, and, and work through the business of capitalism. You know, we shouldn't be subsidising them. But let's talk now to Miriam Cates, MP, Conservative uh, and Education Select Committee member, because this morning on the front pages of the papers, particularly the Times today, legal fears over gender guidance for schools. Rishi Sunak um, is expected to delay we understand trans guidance for schools after the Attorney General and government lawyers warned that plans to strengthen it might be unlawful or possibly would be unlawful. This was when uh, previously Ricky, Rishi Sunak said, I'm going to make sure that parents are told if children of theirs are uh, in any way asking questions about their gender and, and particularly uh, if they're asking if they can change it. Uh, Miriam, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. I mean, we knew that uh, that there might be a bit of um, opposition, I suppose, to this plan by Rishi Sunak. But but has this kind of put him off altogether? What do you, what do you, what do you make of it? No, I think probably the opposite. I mean, of course, it is frustrating that it has been delayed because there is a very serious situation going on in schools at the moment where more and more children are being told that they can change gender, mm. being encouraged to change gender or allowed to change gender with all the safeguarding risks uh, that brings. And of course, it's a hugely difficult situation for teachers as well, who don't know how they're supposed to respond to this lawfully, compassionately, mm. um, you know, when it's well outside of their, their remit of teaching and learning. So we do need this guidance, but it's much more important that it's correct and it's right, both legally and morally, than it is uh, that it comes quickly. And it sounds as though the government has reached the position where if they were to say to schools, no, you can't change a child's gender, mm. you have to call a boy a boy, a boy he and him, then they are not sure whether that is lawful. Now, that's quite extraordinary in a yeah. way that to use the English language in the way it's supposed to be used could be unlawful. And I, I don't know that it necessarily is. I do think there is a way through. But they're clearly prepared to legislate if they have to. And I think that's a very positive step forward. Yes, there's going to be a delay. But actually, if we're acknowledging that schools shouldn't be transitioning children, that is a step forward. Well, yeah, because if, if government lawyers and the attorney general are saying that this might be unlawful, then presumably the law must have changed at some point or other before anybody ever spoke about this kind of nonsense. Well, I think what's happening here is there's some confusion about the Equality Act, how it applies in school and what the protected characteristic of gender reassignment really means. So uh, as your listeners will know, the Equality Act defines these eight or nine, I think, characteristics uh, that you can have as a human being and that you must not be discriminated against um, for having. So, for example, disability, mm. your age, your sex, your religion, all those things. Absolutely. We shouldn't be discriminating against people on that basis. But the gender reassignment characteristic is a little bit different because essentially you can say that you have this protected characteristic just by saying, well, at some point I might change my gender. Mm. You don't have to do anything about it. Just by saying that, just by thinking that, you have that characteristic. So the question is, uh, do children who want to change gender have that characteristic? Well, probably they do. But I don't think treating them as boys and girls, just the same as all other boys and girls, mm. is discrimination because it's not discriminating against them on the basis of their, their, their beliefs about their gender. It's discriminating on the basis of their sex, which yeah. everybody has, male or female. So I, you know, I am not a lawyer, so I don't know what the advice is. And obviously the attorney general's advice is always private and it shouldn't have been leaked. Um, but clearly there are some questions to answer here and they've got to get to a point where they're, they're legally be satisfied i understand that but i yeah. don't see why it should be unlawful to use the correct pronouns no exactly right because also the other question i suppose that arises from all of this is that you know if you're going to argue that uh, these people have to be protected in some way from the kind of speech that might offend them then you're kind of going down a very dangerous road are you not because we've already found in fact that it is not 
uh, unlawful to, 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 to cause offence. And if people take offence, that's not against the law. Absolutely. And we certainly shouldn't be raising children with the idea that they're never going to hear anything offensive or difficult. And of course, schools should be, placed, should be places where children are treated sensitively and with compassion and safeguarding. But at the moment, the problem is that these children are not being safeguarded. Often these children uh, have got other issues like ADHD, autism, trauma, being bullied. Huge proportion of these children are looked after children. They don't live with their, their birth parents who could, who could protect them. And actually, they're being completely taken out of safeguarding by teachers and schools just agreeing and say, OK, yes, all your problems are the result of actually you've been born in the wrong body, which mm. is happening in schools. And they're then being excluded from the kind of safeguarding procedures that they ought to be entitled to so at the moment we have what is really a safeguarding disaster a bit mm. of a wild west uh, and we absolutely need the government to bring forward guidance that's backed up with law that will allow teachers to do you know their job properly without worrying about this and there's a really interesting piece that's been published today by a mother of a trans identified child on, on the capex website yeah. that just goes through exactly what their family has been through and how the school hid from them what was happening um, you know, really, really frightening stuff to read as a parent. And mm. this, I'm afraid, is happening in a lot of schools. And this is why we need the guidance. Yes. And do you think a lot of this is down to a piece you wrote about yesterday and this kind of elite overproduction of people coming out of university with this kind of woke ideology uh, that's been implanted in them really since they were at school? And suddenly now we've got those kinds of people maybe doing sort of leadership type jobs in, in all manner of different places like education and elsewhere, Coots Bank, for example, where, you know, suddenly people are taking the view that, oh, well, I don't like your politics, so therefore I'm going to sort of excommunicate you effectively. Well, I do think the mass expansion of higher education does have something to do with this. And I think that's some, a lot of these ideas, gender ideology, critical race theory, have come from American yeah. academia. And yeah. they, they're an export, if you like. They've come over to British universities and, you know, around the Western world. Mm. And, you know, huge numbers of young people go through universities. Obviously, they're in quite uh, um, a, a, a kind of what, an artificial group, I suppose, yes. of just people of their own age, just people from a similar background. And they are being taught these ideas. We know that. We, we've got lots of examples from universities uh, of these ideas being very heavily pushed. Mm. We've seen what happened to Professor Kathleen Stock when she took a different yeah. view. And so we know that's happening. And, of course, you know, young people go to university. They then go into the professional world and teaching is included and it does seem to me that it's got to the point where this is almost seen as just reality and normal now in certain groups of people that of course you can change gender of course you can be whatever gender you like but of course that's an anti-reality point of view but if enough people around you think like that why would you challenge yeah. it so we've got a big job on our hands because legislation isn't going to change people's minds it might protect children and that's very important yeah. um but we need to find a way to row back on some of these very anti-reality ideas that are quite socially damaging because it seems to have happened quite quickly i mean you know i've been around a bit longer than you and i don't remember ever having a sort of period of time quite as bad as this where you know you read stories in the papers and you just go what i mean the idea that nigel farage has been kicked off uh, the coots banking list as customer because he's friends with Novak Djokovic, a world-renowned tennis player and champion, um, and Donald Trump, former president of the United States of America. But apparently those are two people that are non-people, uh, non according to Coots Bank. It's incredible. It is. It's almost like the ideas of, of what is moral in a public sense has been flipped on its head in the last 10 or 20 years. And 20 years ago, the idea that a bank account would shut down someone's account because they don't agree with their political views would be absurd. But now clearly these big corporations think it's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to cancel people with views that are problematic. 
And that's quite a significant turnaround. And I think, you know, as I said, I'm sure you know, universities have got something to do with that. Mm. But also we do need to look at some of the legislation that was brought in by the Blair government, particularly the Equality Act, actually, which has this public sector equality duty, which essentially makes public sector organisation into culture warriors. Um, you know, it's their job now to push some of these ideas, mm. or they think it is. I don't know whether that's actually the case in the law. Um, and, and some of these this legislation that's brought in with good intentions to stop people being discriminated against, you know, who would disagree with that? has actually had some fairly serious unintended consequences mm. in the way that it's turned our neutral organisations political. And that can't be good for anybody. No, it really can't. Um, just one final thing before we let you go, Miriam. Um, apparently, breaking news today, 574 people were detected crossing the channel in small boats on Tuesday, the second highest number uh, on a single day so far this year. Um, I mean, Rishi Sunak who's currently got the lowest approval rating that he's ever had since he's been in Downing Street, still says that just uh, stopping the boats is, uh, is one of his five aims. I mean, he's not doing it, is he? It's certainly not turned around as much as we want, yes, but yet. But nobody has done more practically or in legislation to turn this situation around than, than the Prime Minister. And OK, I absolutely agree this hasn't happened yet, but mm. we had the illegal migration bill uh, reached its final stages this week. We had these, uh, you know, mega voting sessions to defeat the Lord's attempts to defeat the bill, which has happened successfully. And of course, we've got to wait for the Supreme Court judgment on whether or not the planes can go to Rwanda. That'll be later this year. So yes, it's not happening quickly enough, but there really is nothing more that the Prime Minister could be doing right now. What we need is for the law to go through, for the planes to leave Rwanda, then we'll have the deterrent that we need. And I am pretty confident that once that deterrent's in place, we will start to see a change. Because essentially what's happening is there are these criminal gangs all the way around the world that see Britain as a weak spot, that see our laws as a weak spot. It's easy to come here. It's easy to stay. Once we change that perception, I think it will be turned around very quickly. And I appreciate your viewers want to see it happen more quickly. Mm. But we've got to have we've got to work within the law. And we are doing everything we can within the law to turn the situation around. OK. And certainly something that the viewers are saying to me and, and I've said today is that I know that this is something that comes up every year. And I'm not trying to make you work until you drop. But, you know, people look at MPs and Westminster shutting down in July and not coming back really until sort of end of September, beginning of October. Is there no way that Westminster could sort of function through the summer months, the eight or nine weeks that, that it shuts down for? Well, I think a lot of uh, that time in the summer is spent doing really important things in the constituency that you don't have chance to do for the rest of the year because you know, most MPs, they travel down to London on a Sunday night or early Monday morning. They don't go home till Thursday night. Sometimes we can go home Wednesday night, but Thursday night. You get Friday and Saturday in your constituency and you think all the things that constituents want you to do, all the meetings they want you to go to, all the events you want to be seen at, all the um, surgeries you run, all the things that you help people with, you know, one day a week or one and a half days a week is not very much to be in your constituency. So actually those summer weeks are really important time um, for doing those things mm. that you just don't have a chance to do. And also MPs do work very hard, the vast majority, and we do need a break. And obviously, we can't just take time off at any point during the legislative term. It's a bit like at school, you know, you have to all break together. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't work.
So that's my defence of MPs. <laughs> Very well said. Thank you, Miriam. Miriam Cates, Conservative MP, Education Select Committee member, of course, and one of the good, hard-working MPs that we do have in this country. We do have some. Don't make the mistake that they're all at it, because Miriam actually is fighting on behalf of common sense, fighting on behalf of her constituents, uh, and I would salute her for that. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll have Prime Minister's questions, of course, the last one of the summer months uh, until the end of September. Uh, but we will talk to Peter Cardwell about that. We'll take your calls, of course, as well. Uh, Brad in Cambridge says, the situation with Farage is a complete outrage. We now live in a country where someone can't hold a bank account because of their political views, yet a convicted rapist can win millions in a national lottery. Well said. A good point. Well made. Uh, this is Talk TV. We'll take some calls coming up. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 